If you have your Bibles with you, or if you don't, there must be a Bible in, in the seat pocket right underneath you. Grab it. We're going to be in the book of Luke. We're back in our series, Good Dirt. Um, so in this series, we've been looking at the parable of Jesus, where Jesus talks about the different types of soil, and as the farmer throws out the seed, all these soils receive the seed, but some the seed dies almost immediately, some the seed sprouts up and it withers away, and some it grows. And we've been asking this question, what kind of people are we? And when we receive the gospel, when we encounter the gospel, what kind of people will the gospel encounter? And so as we've, uh, we've been making our way through it, we'll be in Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7. So tur turn there for, and we'll get there in a moment. Some of you may know my story. Um, I grew up in the Middle East. And um, in, in the Middle East, in this particular country that I was in, there, was, there wasn't a lot of entertainment. And when I say entertainment, I'm talking more movies and video, uh, TV shows and such. And so TV shows, when they finally did make it to, the, to this country, it would be many years behind when it actually was filmed or when it was actually shown here in the U.S. And usually what we ended up with was a heavily redacted or heavily edited version of the actual show. As a matter of fact, sometimes I get here and realize that there was actually 15 episodes to the season and not not just three, right? And so one of my favorite shows growing up, um, this show was, it started in the 1960s, but again, I'm not that old. It showed up in the country maybe in the 90s or so, and I loved watching it as a child growing up. And the show was Star Trek. Any Trekkies in the house? We have just one, okay. All right, for the rest of you, you're missing an incredible show. Um, go look it up, you'll, you'll be hooked. Star Trek was an incredible show in its time. Um, it came, it was breaking many, many barriers, no pun intended there. Um, it, was, it was groundbreaking in a way. Gene Roddenberry, the, the author or the writer behind the show, he, when he was coming up with it, he didn't want just any show that was typical of the 60s. And it was very much reflected in the people that he cast. One such person, you may, if those, for those of you who are fans of the show, you may know the character, Lieutenant Commander uh, Uhura. There, fled my mind. Thanks, John. Lieutenant Commander Uhura. She was played by Nichelle Nichols, who today it would not seem unordinary. But in the 60s, during her time, she was one of very few black women who played a part. As a matter of fact, the only black woman who played a part that was so prominent as one of the main characters in a show. They were always put in roles of supporting or, or such, but she was put in the forefront. Now, you may be wondering why I'm bringing up this story. As a matter of fact, as she was going through the show, and as much as Jean Roddenberry loved having her in the forefront, the people around her did not. As a matter of fact, the show's producers was having a hard time with it. They would work against her. They would actually make it a hostile work environment for her. When she got fan letters, they, fan letters, they would keep it away from her. Um, the show was increasingly hostile towards her. As a matter of fact, into the show, within a, a season or two, 
She told Jean, you know what? I think it's time for me to quit. I don't deserve the treatment I'm getting. I don't deserve the criticism I'm getting. As a matter of fact, this is just not the place for me. And all this doubt and, and self-criticism and all that was seeping in and she was having a hard time with it. And one day she was at a conference where she met a fan. And this fan said, this fan, as a matter of fact, was Martin Luther King Jr. And he looked at her and said, Nichelle, you do not quit that show. As a matter of fact, this is mine and my family's favorite show. As a matter of fact, my kids watch this show, and you are an inspiration to them. Not only are you an inspiration to little black girls everywhere, you're an inspiration to women, you're an inspiration to all sorts of people coming up. For us to be able to see that you are on the forefront, doing what you're doing, keep on, stay on. And this is what she writes, when a person like Martin Luther King says you can't leave a show, you stay. She said, it was daunting, it humbled my heart, and I just could not leave. God had charged me with something more important than my career. Nicole stayed on for the rest of the show and even the movies that came up after it. Now you may be wondering, that's great, it's just a, a TV, TV star or a movie star, what's so great about her? See, her impact did not stop there. As a matter of fact, in, in the 70s, when the NASA program started to accelerate and, and they were looking at adding on a lot more people to their astronaut corps, she was invited to speak because a lot of NASA engineers were Trekkies. They all were fans of this show, so they invited her to speak. And one day when she got to their conference, she looked out into the crowd and she asked this question, where are my people? because what she saw was a homogenous group of people, white, educated male. And she asked this question, why are more people not represented? And so the director of NASA put her in charge of recruiting. And that year, 8,000 applicants through her efforts applied. Out of the 8,000, unlike other years before, 1,000, 1,600 applicants were women. And 1,000, were African-Americans. <laughs> Among the astronauts, here are some of the names you may or may not recognize that came out of her recruiting efforts. Dr. Sally Ride, Frederick Gregory, Guyon Blufford Jr., Judy Resnick, Ronald McNair. Her impact did not stop with the show, it went on. As a matter of fact, if, if you're still interested in learning her story, there's a new show coming out about her where she is personally interviewed. And there's a reason why I'm, I'm presenting this to you. Let me ask you this. What do you do when your circumstances around you tell you to quit? How do you handle moments of self-doubt? How do you handle when things around you have gotten to such a pace or such a, such a fever pace that you're like, this is it. God, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know why I'm going through what I'm going through. I don't know why I'm doing this. I want out. What happens when, when a sickness that you've been seeing the doctor about and you prayed and you've asked God to heal you and nothing has happened? 
What happens when you have, as a parent, you have a child who's walked away from the Lord and they're dealing with stuff and you've been praying and you've been praying and you've been praying and they don't respond. It seems like everything's broken apart, everything's falling, falling through the cracks, God's not hearing your story. Do you give up? What do you do in those moments? What do you do in those moments where the promotion that you've been seeking year after year, you get close to it and gives, it keeps moving away, it keeps going off to other people? How do you handle that? How do you handle moments of self-doubt? How do you handle moments when you wonder whether God is really at work? When the God who called you out of wherever you were and put you here today, when the God who called you out of whatever situation you had and he put you here and suddenly you feel like, wait, where's God? Because I don't feel him. I've been calling out to him, I've been asking him, and he doesn't respond. What do you do? Because if Nichelle Nichols had made a decision to quit, there was a legacy behind her that would have been sacrificed. Who are the people that you allow in your, into your life to help you, guide you, to help you, m- motivate you, to help you push you along? This morning, we're going to meet a person who's very close to Jesus, who also struggled with very similar questions. He looked at his life, he looked at his surroundings, he looked at his circumstances, and he wondered why God was not at work. We're going to learn something about him and about ourselves, hopefully, as we go. Let's turn to Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John calling two of his disciples, send them to the Lord, saying, are you the, one who is, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to, us, sent us to you, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Let's, let's take a pause here. Consider the circumstance. John, if we don't know, John is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who was the, the cousin of Jesus. They grew up together. They were born a very, a very close to each other. They must have spent a lot of time with each other. And John, he was a prophet. As a matter of fact, Jesus calls him the last prophet. So he would be considered, along with all the Old Testament prophets, he would be considered one of the prophets. Except the only difference was that he showed up in the New Testament. And his role was simply this, to point to the coming Messiah. So he spent his entire ministry, he spent his entire life speaking and preaching and pushing people and encouraging people and challenging people and calling out people and calling them to repent and say, repent, repent, because the Messiah is coming. And this Messiah is not coming, he's coming with judgment. He's coming to restore things. He's coming to break apart the systems that are here today. So repent of your sins, get right with God. And that was his call. That was his ministry. He spent his life faithfully doing it. He lived an austere life. He lived a life that was contrary to many people. He lived out in the wilderness. He was, he was one of those where he, that's how, what he had devoted his life to. And one could make the argument that he took it a little too far. 
Because suddenly he's in prison, and he's in prison for the fact that he called out the king. He went up to Herod and to his wife, and he said, you've committed adultery. As a matter of fact, Herod had married his brother's wife. And he's saying, you need to repent of this sin. And Herod, instead of repenting, goes the opposite direction. Instead, imprisons John. And John, in this situation, he knows that it's not going to turn out any, any better than this because Herod is not just going to wake up one morning and say, okay, John, you're released, you're good to go. Instead, he's either in prison for life or he's facing death. And John is sitting and looking at his circumstances saying, wait, something does not add up here because I'm called to be a prophet. I'm called to prepare the way for the Messiah. And yet, here I am, rotting away in prison. Because you see, the message that John had was prepare the way for the Lord. Because this Messiah who was coming, the Messiah was coming to restore all of God's people. He was coming to make things, things right again. He was coming because the Romans had invaded the kingdom of Israel and they had taken over the people. They were oppressing the people. And the Messiah according to John, was going to overturn all of that. The Messiah was going to release the prisoners, was going to set free the captives. And ironically, he himself is sitting in a prison waiting for the Messiah to do this. Luke records that as Jesus was traveling the countryside and as he was ministering, the stories about Jesus started spreading. It spread so much that his own, his, uh, John's disciples would come visit him in prison and tell John of all the things that Jesus was doing. He was like, John, did you hear what your cousin did? Last week, Pastor Brian reminded us of how he had healed the centurion servant. And he raised a young man from death. He did all these things. And John is hearing these stories. But here's what's unique about this moment. John sends disciples to Jesus and he asks a question that baffles our minds sometimes. John, who has been his entire ministry and his entire time has been preparing for this moment, is instead asking this question. He's asking Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Are you the Messiah? Or are we waiting for somebody else? What happened, John? What happened that you who were of such certainty, you who knew exactly what you were called out for, you who knew who were preaching and who were declaring, you called us out to repentance, you called us out to baptism, and suddenly now you yourself are doubting, you yourself is wondering if this is Jesus the Messiah or not. Have you ever had a moment like that where you've lived your life in a certain way with absolute certainty and then something happened? made you question things. You knew that God had a plan for you or you knew that you had a plan for yourself and all of a sudden something happened and now things don't seem so certain anymore. John is in the, in the middle of a crisis. See, I love the honesty in that question. Because he's not hiding behind, oh, I'm your cousin and I should be polite, I shouldn't insult you. He's not hiding behind, oh, I spent my entire life, so maybe, maybe not, I'm just going to... No, he's, he's straight up asked Jesus, 
are you the one or not? Because what this does is gives me hope that if John, who had absolute reason to be certain, if he could be wondering, then so can I. If he can ask the tough question, then so can you. You see, John is imprisoned physically, but he's also imprisoned by his doubt. All great people of God come to a point of doubt. And if you're honest with yourself today, or if, you're, if we're honest with ourselves, all of us, we've had moments of doubt. Doubt is a part of who we are. Doubt is a part of our journey. The book of Job starts, is a wonderful treatise of, of doubt. It shows Job, who had everything, lost everything, and for good reason, he's doubting the goodness of God. Abraham and Sarah doubted that God's promise of a child would come true. They had good reason. Asaph doubted if the, because the wicked were prospering around him, and he even reconsidered, should I even keep serving God? Should I keep worshiping in the temple? Moses doubted God could use him and use him to lead Israel out of captivity. Gideon doubted God if he could use him to fight back Israel's oppressors. Jeremiah, in his, in his book, he writes like this. He's complained to the Lord. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. When's the last time we did that? When we complained to the Lord. Yet I would plead my case before you. Excuse me. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Habakkuk 1.13, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up man, a man more righteous than he? The people of Israel seem to be constantly in this state of confusion and doubt. Thomas, Jesus' own disciple, Jesus had told his disciples that I would come back, and when he came back, he said, I cannot believe it. You see, we find ourselves in places of doubt, just like these people. Well, we're not there physically. We're not imprisoned physically. We're so often imprisoned by our own doubts. When we reach the end of our careers or relationships or health, when we have seasons of unanswered prayers, leaving us feeling abandoned. For many of us, it seems like doubt is a constant companion. If you talk to anyone who's been in the faith longer than you, or if you talk to people who've been in the faith for a long time, this is what they'll tell you. The bigger the faith, the bigger the doubt. They go hand in hand at times. This is what it is. Doubt is an integral part of our faith journey, and we shouldn't be apprehensive about it. Doubt is a part of our journey, we shouldn't be apprehensive about it. And it, here's, here's what I'm saying. See, many of us grew up in traditions or churches or situations where we were told to keep our doubts at bay. If you doubted something about the Bible, we put it aside. Sometimes when we asked questions, those questions were ignored. Sometimes when we brought it up in church, we were asked to keep silent. When we, we were taught to sit, just put it aside. And just believe. But you see, we come across many stories of former Christians who were told the same exact things. Who when they came across their doubts and challenges to their faith, 
They could not stand anymore. They could not withstand them, and they walked away from their faith. Aaron Rodgers, Marty Simpson, Joshua Harris, and many, many more. The list goes on. These are successful athletes and authors and worship leaders, all people who had functioned at the top of their abilities, who had experienced God in so many different ways, yet when it came to their doubts, could not handle it, and so they walked off. What What you do with your doubt matters. You see, when Jesus was talking about this parable of the soils, there's a particular type of soil that I want to talk about, and that's the soil with the rocks in it. You see, when, when the farmer, he scattered the seed, the seed fell on the soil, and it, it took, this root started growing, and it started growing, but here's what happened. The rocks that were still in the ground made a shallow, and soon that faith withered. Soon that plant died. See, there were, things, there were things in that soil. There were rocks in that soil that prevented faith from growing, that prevented these plants from growing, and that's what doubts can be when left unchecked. I remember a few years ago when we were redoing the front yard and we were removing all plants and putting in new ones. Every time I dig down, I would hit rocks. And so most of our time, instead of just planting plants, most of our time was spent removing rocks. Because you see, unless I remove that rock, I know that the plants that I plant would die eventually because those rocks were always there. There was was so much rock there that these plants wouldn't take. Rocks in the soil preventing faith from growing. What we do with our Doubt matters. See, doubt has the potential of derailing our journey or strengthening our faith, depending on how you deal with it. Let's continue in seven, Luke chapter 7. Verses 21, it goes like this. So Jesus' disciples have come to, or John's disciples have come to Jesus and asked this question, and this is Jesus' response. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and many of whom who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered to them, and he said, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In this passage, John is facing the dark value of of his faith. He's facing the darkness and he's facing the hard nights He's facing prison. He's facing the circumstances. And suddenly, he's at a place of doubt. You see, we've all experienced our share of doubt. For some of us, it's manageable. Some of us, it's minimal. Some of us just completely ignore it. Some of us focus mostly on faith, and we just we will ourselves not to doubt. Some of us just let it consume us. How do you deal with it? What do you and I do with doubts of this kind? What happens when the cliched answers wears out? When people just say, oh, hold on, 
Things will be okay. All things work out for the good. Do they? Because let, let's look at John's story here. John asked Jesus this question, and I'll fast forward for a second to the end of his life. John never makes it out of prison. As a matter of fact, in just a few days, he would be beheaded. The prophet that God had called to prepare the way for Jesus, that would be his end. What happens in moments where things don't work out? You see, we're often conditioned to see doubt as the enemy of our faith when it could really help us draw closer to Jesus. But it only happens, we can only draw close to Jesus when we have understood our doubts, when we have expressed our doubts, and use it rightly. So the danger of such conditioning is we often believe things like, oh, just don't, don't just doubt, just believe. Don't doubt, just believe. And, and by doing that, we don't really resolve our doubts. We just kind of repress them. And the problem with doing that is often they pop up in more toxic ways. They pop up in situations, in circumstances when we have not really resolved them. When you have not really asked yourselves the hard questions of, is God really worthy of my trust? Because if you don't resolve it now, later on a situation comes up where you will have to ask and you're forced to ask that question. When we haven't resolved matters of is God's goodness and of God's faithfulness and God's purpose and, and our relationship and our worth, when we've not really dealt with those doubts, they do come up later on. See, what it did for John, and I'm hoping that we can take a moment to look at his story, but before I can, we can do that, here's what I have to say about doubts. Doubts, if ignored, can derail us. And if dealt doubt uh, rightly, will strengthen us. If ignored, it can destroy us. If dealt with, it can strengthen us. When in doubt, deal with it head on. Ask the tough questions. Talk to the right people. Confront the right people. Ask. Doubt unresolved can lead to a broken faith. See, there's, what John does is incredible. In the moment of his biggest question, in the moment of his biggest, he may have considered, I'm, I'm a failure in this moment because I'm asking the question on which I've built my ministry. I'm asking, are you, the, are you the Christ? What he does is the right thing that any one of us should do in the face of doubt. The first thing he does is he sends the question directly to the source. Because he knows if I'm going to get an answer to my doubt, it's going to come from the source. And he goes, Jesus, are you the one? Because if anyone's going to give me an answer, it's you. You see, God is not afraid of our questions. God is not surprised by our doubt. Because doubt is so big a part of our journey. It's a part of our faith. It's not the enemy of faith. It's an element of faith. You see, doubt and faith go hand in hand. The thing that we often ignore is the role that doubt can play. Because, see, the opposite of doubt is certainty. If I don't doubt something, I know it's certain. I know I can see Kathy there, so I don't doubt that she's there. I'm certain that she's there. But if I'm doubting, 
there's an element of not knowing. What is faith? Faith is simply this. I don't know that it is, but I choose to believe. Faith is not certainty. Faith is choosing to believe even when the evidence does not point that way. Even when, when things don't look that way. Faith is choosing to believe in God who may not be in this room physically, who may not be in this room tangibly. You may not be able to touch it, but you have faith in him. You have faith in his goodness. You have faith in his trustworthiness. You have faith. That's what faith is. So faith and doubt go hand in hand. Faith and certainty are opposites of each other. Because if you have certainty, why do you need faith? What John does in the first moment of doubt is he goes to the source. Go to the Lord with your questions. Seek him. Ask him because he invites you. He says, seek me and you will find me. Ask me and, you will, and I will answer. And so often we're afraid of that first step. The second step you see, the second thing that happens in this moment is Jesus, when the disciples, John's disciples come to him and they ask him, Jesus, are you really the one? Instead of answering them, he goes on with his day. He goes on with his ministry. He starts healing people. He starts touching people. Diseases are gone and evil spirits are cast out. The eyes are, uh, blind eyes are restored. People are hearing the good news. All of this is happening. And Jesus looks at John's disciple and says, go back to John, tell him this. Tell him what you've seen. Tell him what you've heard. Because even when it feels like the work has stopped, even when it feels like John's ministry has collapsed, the work is still happening. God's purposes are still working. God is essentially telling John, John, pay attention. Even when you wonder why God is not at work, consider the work that is happening. Consider the work that God is doing. Because he's saying, you may not be able to see it, your expectations are not being met. Your expectations of how God should be and how God should intervene and how God should heal and how God should answer, maybe he's not doing it that way, does not mean that he has stopped working. He's still healing. He's still casting out spirits. He's still, the gospel is still moving forward. It's almost like John is sitting in this prison cell screaming out saying, God, I don't want to be here. It's like a child who's, who visits an art gallery. In almost every museum Jen and I have visited, we we'll always see this one child. We love visiting museums all over wherever we go. And one of the, when we went to Paris one time, we visited the Louvre, which is arguably one of the most famous museums there. And so when people come there, you would imagine people just coming in there filled with awe and wonder, but not the children. Because you'll undoubtedly see a handful of children who are throwing tantrums because they hate the fact that they have to be there. They hate the fact that they have to be dragged around at gallery after gallery, looking at paintings, looking at artwork, looking at sculptures. And if you really think about it, what are they really crying about? What are they really arguing with their parents about? What are they throwing that tantrum about? Because you see, in their childlike mind, they don't comprehend where they are. Because if only they understood, if only they opened their eyes to look around at the work that was around them, 
the paintings that was painted that were painted by the different artists and the, the majestic works of art, the majestic sculptures, the majestic things all around them, they would understand this is a place of beauty. This is a place of glory. And yet, they're lying on the floor screaming and crying. Jesus is saying, open your eyes to see what God is doing around you. In your situation, in your, in your circumstance, it may seem like everything has broken. It may seem like everything has come to a standstill. It may seem like you don't want to be there and you're crying to get out. But God is saying, open up your eyes and look at the work that is happening around you. Maybe you don't see all of the work around you. He's saying, look at the work that has happened in your own life. Dear friends, when you come across doubts, one of the best things you and I can do is to look back. Because here's the thing, there's a, there are, there's a good chance that God has already done something in your life that will remind you that he is faithful for today. My own personal stories constantly remind me from when I was a child and how God healed me as a child to the, when I'm now an adult, I can look back and say, hey, if God healed me back then, I remember the days of growing up in the Middle East when I, when I was a child with severe asthma. And I remember fasting and praying and asking my, asking my parents and asking God, saying, God, when will this be over? When will I be able to get out and play like other children? When, I'll, when will I be able to go out and run like other children? I was at a point where I just could not even walk up a flight of stairs without having an attack. And I remember f facing that. I remember all the complications and the medic medications I was taking. All of this was weighing down. And I remember as a child crying out to the Lord, God, heal me. Crying out and fasting until he did. And on the day that he actually did heal me. And realizing that all of this wondering, God had heard it. God had heard my cries, God had heard my parents, God had heard my family, and he had brought me to this point of healing. And then going off into college and going off into, into the work world, and I remember at a time, almost a, couple of, almost a decade ago, where God was calling me to leave my job and leave everything that I had known and suddenly move off to college and go back to ministry, go, go into ministry, and I remember that being super uncomfortable, and I had wonders and I had doubts about whether this was really what God was calling me. I remember a day when I had two digits in my bank account, and the rent was due the next two weeks. And I remember asking God, God, is this really why you called me here? I was comfortable. I was able to live life comfortably. Why did you call me into this? When you said you would provide, when you said you would be the one to lead, why am I here today? Why am I doing this? I remember asking God those questions. I remember knocking on every, every business I could find, sending out resume after resume and not being able to find a job and saying, God, this is not right. I think it's time for me to go home. I remember God opening up a door miraculously for me, be to, to, for me to be able to work. And I remember a church in Illinois calling the school and saying, hey, we'll sponsor Marvin for the rest of the year. That was God at work. Then I remember you, uh, uh, us coming here, a miracle after miracle. Most of you know Jenna and my story of how we had been waiting and waiting, asking God for a miracle and not seeing it, being heartbroken year after year after year.
looking for that child and loss after loss after loss. We said, God, is this ever going to happen? All that times of doubt, we were able to look back and say, yes, it, do, it does not look good now. But yes, God can do because he did it in the past. The God who rescued me from my asthma, the God who provided me for my, uh, my college, the God who did all of this can do this. And here we are to a year and a half with a year and a half year old. And we look at you were the one who heard our cries, who heard our doubts, and you helped get us through it. You see, your doubts today is the ground on which God can do his miracle. But if you let him, if you confront him with him, if you bring it to him, let your doubts become the soil in which he can do his miracles. Because it can either become the soil or it can which this, this gospel dies. It can either cause you to stumble or it can help you to grow. Will you deal with your doubts? Will you look around and see the work that God has already done? Will you surround yourself with people who've experienced God in incredible ways? Will you listen to sermons? Will you listen to people who've, who've experienced God in such ways? We just need a larger perspective. And third, Jesus does this. He turns John back to the scripture. You see, John had been preaching the prophecy of Isaiah saying, the Messiah will come, the Messiah will heal, the Messiah will open up blind eyes, the Messiah will preach deliverance, and the Messiah will bring the good news to the poor. John, uh, Jesus is saying, John, do you see what's happening? The same message that you have been preaching for decades, that's what's happening right now. The message you preach of deliverance and repentance is happening right now. Look at the word. Look at the word. One of my favorite apologists, William Lane Craig, often says this. He says, whatever argument or whatever doubt you have, come at this word. Because there's not a doubt, there's not a question that you have that this word cannot answer. Whatever argument you've seen, it's answered by this word. Chances are someone before you have already asked it. And Jesus has already answered it. See, there are promises that we have to hold on to. This word is a promise that he has given us. He says, hold on to this. He's saying, John, hold on to the word that you've been preaching. Hold on to the prophecies, the promises that God gave in the Old Testament. He is going to fulfill them. You see, so long, so long, so so often for us, when we're in the midst of doubt, it matters what we turn to. He's saying, turn to the word. When you're fearful, who do you turn to? When you're dismayed, who do you turn to? When you're, when you, when you're needing wisdom about a decision, who, who do you turn to? When you, when you feel like things are rocky around you, when things are shaky around you, who do you turn to? Well, let's look at the scriptures. Isaiah says this, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Deuteronomy says this, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not, be, do not fear and do not be dismayed. 
Psalm 32 says this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Psalm 37, the Lord makes firm the steps of one who delights in him. Though he may stumble, he will not fall. The Lord upholds him with his hand. 2 Corinthians, he says, but he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Matthew, he says, come to me all who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. When you're in the midst of the darkness nights of your soul, where do you turn to? John went directly to the source. John said, Jesus, are you the one? God is not afraid of your hard questions. He embraces them. Jesus says, look at God's work around you. Look at the things that God is doing in your life, in the church. You see, so often when we, we talk about connect cards here at the church, we say, hey, one of the things that we want to hear about is your priest reports. Because what that does, when God is doing something in your life and you let us know, it builds our faith. It builds our faith. It allows us to celebrate with you, but also to remind ourselves that God is doing something. God is at work. We want to hear about it. We want to celebrate it. And remind yourself with this word. Because when all else fails, when Jesus says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall stand. Jesus ends this section by saying this, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Some translations say, who does not stumble over me. Jesus is saying, you may have questions, you may not see me at work. Maybe you have expectations of how I should work. Maybe you've been asking for something and you've been waiting for me to move in a certain way and I haven't moved yet. And that's causing you to stumble. That's causing you to say, I think it's time for me to pack up and head out. I think I don't deserve this. He says, don't stumble on account of me. John, hold on. John, hold on. Because what you're lacking is perspective. You may see the prison right now, but what I see is your eternity. You may see the brokenness right now. You may see the pain right now, but I see where you're headed. Jesus is looking at each and every one of us and he's saying, I see where you're headed. I'm pushing you there. I'm guiding you there. He does not always answer with the speed we desire, nor is his answer always the deliverance we hope for but he will send the help we need. So as we close out today, remember this. When you wonder why God is not at work, consider his work around you. Consider his word to you. Consider his promises to you because they're there. Hold on, hold on because he is leading you, because he is guiding you. It may not turn out exactly the way you hope and want, but he'll get you there. He'll get you to the end. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer this morning? Father, we thank you for your word that reminds us and guides us and 
Lord, just affirms us this morning that we're not alone in our struggle, we're not alone in our doubts, we're not alone in our, in our pain and our suffering, but that instead, Lord, you are guiding us, you're working through us, in and through us, you're working around us, and Lord, help us in moments of our own doubt, help us be reminded that you are still God, that you are still good, and that you're still at work. Lord, help us look at our circumstances and not be broken by it, but instead be built by it. Lord, help the doubts that we have, help the wonders that we have, not to drive us away, but to drive us closer to you. And Lord, you know the thoughts that each person has in this room. Lord, you know the questions they have. Lord, I pray that you would deal, you would answer, you would work. Thank you, God. Keep us and guide us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.